Do you remember being a teenager? Do you remember ignoring your parents when you were a teen? You were probably thinking, Ugh, why do I have to listen to my parents? They don't know anything. Besides, they can't control me and my life. If you're the parent of a teenager now, you also know what I'm talking about. But did you know this teenage mindset is exactly the sort of mindset we should have as Christians? The bottom line, we're called to ignore the powers of this world because true power comes from above. You're listening to The Way with Father Dustin Lyon, a podcast of the Ephesus School Network. Welcome back to The Way Podcast. I'm your host, Father Dustin. I want to take us back to Jesus' trial and crucifixion. I know we just went through Ascension and Pentecost, but I think this is an important part of Jesus' life that deserves a lot of our attention. I want to focus our attention especially on the trial of Jesus. In this case, it's presented in the Gospel of John. It's a very powerful scene. Here, the kingdom of God, represented by Jesus, confronts the kingdom of this world, represented by Pilate. If we've been reading through the New Testament, we know that the last time these two kingdoms collided, John represented the kingdom of God, and Herod represented the kingdoms of this world. And what happened? John ended up dead, beheaded, out of jealousy. So, how do we think Jesus is going to fare? Probably not much better, at least not at first glance. But, as I said, I want to focus especially on the trial. So here it is from the Gospel of John. Then they took Jesus from Caiaphas to Pilate's headquarters. Then Pilate entered the headquarters again, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Judeans? Jesus answered, Do you ask this on your own will, or did others tell you about me? Pilate replied, I am not a Judean, am I? Your own nation and the chief priests have handed you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not from this world. If my kingdom were from this world... My followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Judeans. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. Pilate asked him, So, are you a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this I was born, and for this I came into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. Pilate asked him, What? Is truth. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to him, Here is the man. When the chief priests and the police saw him, they shouted, Crucify him! Crucify him! Now when Pilate heard this, he was more afraid than ever. He entered his headquarters again and asked Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. 
Pilate therefore said to him, Do you refuse to speak to me? Do you not know that I have the power to release you and the power to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no power over me unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to release him, but the Judeans cried out, If you release this man, you are no friend of the emperor. Everyone who claims to be a king sets himself against the emperor. Then, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus outside and sat on the judge's bench at the place called the Stone Pavement, or in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Pilate asked them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but the emperor. Then he handed him over to them to be crucified. I've, of course, edited John chapter 18, 28 through 40, and 19, 1 through 16 for time constraints. If you want, however, you can go back and read the whole thing. So here's the clash of kingdoms. Pilate versus Jesus. For me, what's most interesting is Jesus' silence. Pilate is railing against him. In turn, Pilate is getting pressure from the Judean authorities. But in order to try and get Jesus to understand the seriousness of this whole situation, Pilate starts threatening him. Don't you know I can kill you? But what does Jesus do? Nothing. He just stands there in silence. I think back to times that people have accused me of things. If I'm innocent, I usually start protesting, asserting my innocence. But if I've been caught with my hand in the cookie jar, then I start making up excuses. But either way, I'm never silent. This seems to be a very powerful scene. Or is it? For many, I believe, they see this as a sign of submission. Jesus gives up and gives in. When seen in this way, this is a bad image. For a society that likes to fight for rights, the trial scene is the opposite sort of image. If you're trying to correct injustices in the world, no one wants the image of someone who simply rolls over and allows the oppressor to murder him. So, in modern society, I think many people reject Christianity as a religion that's soft on authority. I've heard many people say it's a religion for the masses, in that it allows tyrants to rule over the majority of people. I think that was Nietzsche. Sounds about right, doesn't it? Is this how we are to understand the trial of Jesus? Well, I actually think Jesus' trial sends the exact opposite message. I think this scene is an image of power. The secret is to remember that it's a confrontation between the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this world, Caesar in this particular case. And the real question is, whose kingdom is more powerful? If Caesar's kingdom is more powerful, then Jesus ought to be afraid very afraid, because Pilate's threat is real. If Jesus believed this, if the author of the Gospels believed this, 
And if we believe this, then we want to see Jesus beg for his life. Jesus needs to do something, say something, to prevent the wrath of Caesar's kingdom from crashing down upon him. But this isn't the case. Jesus already knows that God's kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, is much more powerful. This is the kingdom that ought to be feared. So the reason that Jesus remains silent is that Pilate really isn't in charge. Jesus knows that he doesn't have to answer to him. So why bother speaking to him? As a priest friend of mine recently said, Jesus is like the teenager walking through the house and not caring what the parent is saying to them. The teenager doesn't fear their parent or believe that they're really in control. So the teenager does what they want. It's the same here. Jesus' silence is basically a, whatever, Pilate, you just keep talking. Your words are empty. I'm just going to keep ignoring you. In fact, you can almost see Jesus looking at his watch as if to say, Hey, Pilate, you going to finish anytime soon? I've got a crucifixion to get to. How's that for a dig against the powers of this world? Jesus' silence and remarks about his kingdom not being of this world in many ways undermines everything we think about the way this world works. We live in a world of hierarchy with politicians, corporations, and the one percenters on the top. They control government, the economy, and even the media. The rest of us are enslaved, if you will, to the structure. But the biblical world thumbs its nose at all of this. Everything is turned upside down, and so the reality is we don't have to answer to them. The biblical answer to the powers of this world is to say, go ahead, do what you want. Let's see what happens. Even if the world puts us to death, the power of the biblical message is that the kingdom of God has resurrection in its back pocket. So even when the Romans hung Jesus on the cross, it didn't matter. He rose from the dead three days later. The Bible, when understood properly, is very iconoclastic, destroying our image of power and authority, which are often the gods we tend to worship instead of the God of Israel. It's also very deconstructionist in the way it tears apart our conception of the way this world works. What's key about understanding all of this is that it gives us a glimpse into how the saints lived their lives. If we want to understand the martyrs, the saints, and those heroes of the first few centuries, we have to understand their worldview. And this is it. Just listen to a hymn we sing on the Sunday of All Saints at the praises of Orthros. Christ the Lord has made wondrous all of his saints that were on earth. For as the apostle declared, they bore his marks, and in their flesh shared his sufferings, adorning themselves therewith, and distinguishing themselves in the beauty that is divine. Let us therefore praise and acclaim them as never-fading flowers and as voluntary victims, and as the church's unerring stars. They shared in his sufferings because the powers that put them to death were of no consequence. It was God whom they feared. It was God in whom they trusted. It was God in whom they placed their hope. And it was in the hope of the resurrection that made all the difference. 
This worldview also explains the gospel reading for the Sunday of All Saints. Here it is from Matthew, from chapter 10 and chapter 19. The Lord said to his disciples, Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Wow. To us that sounds harsh. But what Jesus is doing is breaking our attachment to the world. He's breaking our perception of who is in control. He's destroying the gods of this world that we allow to control us. The thirst for power, the love of money, the anxieties that hold us captive. And he's putting his father on the throne instead. And if we also allow the father to sit on the throne of our lives, it will be well with us. Continuing on with the Sunday's reading. Then Peter said in reply, Lo, we have left everything and followed you. What then shall we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man shall sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or child or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. But many that are first will be last, and the last first. The saints, especially the martyr saints, were not weaklings who ended up at the bottom of the food chain. They were people for whom the scripture had destroyed the idols of this world. So for them, the world made no difference. They didn't answer to the rulers of this world. Instead, they put God on the throne of their lives. Just like the teenager who ignores their parents because they don't have to answer to them. These saints ignored the hierarchies of this world for the hierarchy that is born in heaven. They ignored the principalities of this world to heed the voice of the one who is in heaven. They faced death in this life because true life is yet to come. So, until next time, God bless.